Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Venture Europe, where together we learn from the world's best operators and investors through a series of in-depth conversations and how you can apply the frameworks and ideas presented in your own journey. It is my personal vendetta to make Europe one of the most entrepreneurial continents in the world. Our guest today is Jacqueline Van Ende, founder and CEO of Carbon Equity. Jacqueline went full circle in her hero journey, starting by co-founding the first non-profit student-run strategy consultancy in 28, Decline a Consultant, still going on strong today, then moving into private equity working as an associate for Hall Investments with 12 billion net asset value, to then change gears and move to Manila, Philippines, and then be the CEO of Lamudi, a rocket internet company, growing a team from two to 100 full-time employees. Just later on to realize that she wanted to be part of a more mission-driven organization and come back to the Netherlands. After being a partner at the VC firm P Capital, she decided that she still has some entrepreneurial juice inside and decided to found Carbon Equity, the first alternative climate investment platform with the mission of bringing billions into climate funds based on their emission reduction potential. During this episode, we discuss about a variety of topics ranging from building a high-performing team to dealing with the imposter syndrome and where to hide your computer password. Sorry, Jackie, I just had to leave that in. This was an incredibly honest conversation on team building that any entrepreneur can learn from. Please enjoy my conversation with Jacqueline van den Ende. Jacqueline, let's start with 2013. Tell me the story when uh, you've changed uh, your computer password to startups 2013. Yeah. Um, well, the reason why I did that was because I had been in private equity by that time for three years. I started in 2010 and I worked in a, as an associate at HAL Investments. And that was a great job. You know, it's a very good like starter job where you're an analyst and you get to do a lot of stuff, you get to do the gritty Excel valuation, really the, the analyst associate kind of role. And it's a really great learning curve. But in all of those years, I felt very strongly that I wanted to be a startup entrepreneur. I've always had a very strong and persevering dream of being a startup entrepreneur. And I decided that I needed to do this. I had been planning it. I'd been talking to friends like, guys, if next year I'm still of HAL investments, you really have to kick my ass because I need to move on. And then at a certain point, I thought, okay, I'm just going to change my password. So I remind myself every single day of that dream. And so I changed my password to start 2014. And it's still the same. It, no, wait, I can't tell you that. <laughs> wait. Delete, delete. I'm just going to change my like, okay. right now. <laughs> it's about time. It's about time. Yeah, exactly. No, but it, it was just useful in, in reminding myself every single day and, and then putting the word, putting the D to the word as we say in Dutch. Tell me about the day you realized that you want to go on the entrepreneurship side. What was the feeling? What was the urge? What what pulled you or pushed you to the entrepreneurship side? There wasn't a particular day or time, but I've always been somebody who has ideas. I'm an idea machine. Like there are periods in my life where 
every month on average an idea, a business plan falls to the sky and it always comes with a name. And so my first business idea, which I actually worked into a business plan was called the Soptrap. <laughs> and the idea was like a home trainer, the juicer. So the idea was that you... <laughs> You could be on your home trainer, on your home trainer, and then you could make juice. And I thought of positioning this in main squares of cities or in gyms. I never actually pushed through with this, but so I had ideas constantly. But I also realized that I never actually pushed through with it. And on the one hand, I had this sort of dream of being a startup entrepreneur, but on the other hand, I never quite persevered. And I think the dream is related to. I've always been very self-motivated and like in high school, no, even in primary school, I wanted to decide to do my homework myself. My parents should not tell me to do my homework because I would decide and like entirely self-motivated. I would, the only student ever in high school that would study and deep until midnight, <laughs> so I'm always very self-driven. And I think one of the things I value most in life is freedom. And the whole concept of working for somebody else is something that doesn't quite feel right for me. So I, I, I want that freedom for myself. And that's freedom in owning your own business. And that's freedom in ultimately, hopefully financial independence as well. I'm still a long way from there, but you know, that would be one of the goals of being an entrepreneur. Also, I, I believe that the only way to really get to financial freedom is entrepreneurship or it's, it's one of the most effective ways it's also one of the most effective ways to go bankrupt of course and that's one of the key drivers behind me uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur and the third thing is the experience with the clinical consultant having built the clinical consultant is i can't say the biggest pride of my life and and one of the biggest joys every day Okay, this is a bit spooky, but I follow all of the Instagram accounts of all of the cities of the clinical consultants. And so every day I see posts of like new generations, almost 15 years younger, working at the clinical consultant and all of these stories about what the clinical consultant means to them or what it does in their life. Or even now, sometimes people I encounter like 10 years later and like, they say, you know, I just wanted to thank you for the clinical consultant because it was such a great learning experience and really accelerated my career path. And to have that kind of impact, a footprint that you build something that goes, that you leave behind, it's my contribution in a way. It's my footprint. And I, that, that sounds very vain, by the way, but to build something that lives beyond yourself and that is bigger than yourself is something absolutely beautiful. And I don't think you can achieve the same in any other role, or at least, yes, you can have an impact in every other role. But I think the ability to do so an entrepreneur is, is quite unique. For our listeners, do you want to give us a little bit of a background story of the client consultant, what it is, and when did you start and where is it uh, now? Yeah, sure. The Kleine Consultant is the first non-profit student-run strategy consulting firm of the Netherlands, also in UK and Sweden. It started in, um, I uh, was living in Amsterdam and I worked in, in a cinema uh, called the Uitkijk. It's the smallest and oldest cinema of Amsterdam. It's a really awesome place. And we would run it with two, 12 students. And most of my colleagues there were all film students. And my friends, they wanted to start a film company, a production company 
me and they said, Jackie, we're six people. Everybody wants something different. Can you help us? Can you just sit with us and, and advise us? So I sat with them like, and, and in two hours, we really got to a breakthrough solution. Like, okay, <laughs> this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Just through analytical strategic thinking. And that same night I walked out of the cinema, I stood at my bike and under the, under the streetlight, idea for the Kleine Gesultant with the name and all, it dropped from the sky. And suddenly I could envision this, like the moment I had the idea envisioned, the Kleine Gesultant would have a, an office in every city of the Netherlands and we would have national weekends where all of the Kleine Gesultants would come together. And somehow I, had, I, I, I really clearly pictured this. So I went home and I wrote it down. And what I had learned by then is that I have a lot of ideas, but that I never follow through. So the very next day I met a friend and she was from Isaac. I had been with Isaac and we were talking about what to do after Isaac. And, and then I said, why don't you join me in the clinical Consultant? Why don't you become my co-founder uh, of the clinical Consultant? And that was the best idea I ever had to share that with somebody because a month later, I was on to my next idea. And Marike Ebbing, she's the co-founder, she came back to me and she said, how about the clinical zone? Are we doing this or not? And they were like, oh yeah, for sure, let's do it. And, and so then we just started. We put up posters, we recruited our first batch of clinical consultants in Amsterdam. And we noticed that a lot of big consultants were instantly enamored with the idea. And they were really like, okay, how can I be part of this? So um, it took off from there and then what happened is that I met somebody else from Utrecht and he was actually, he had quite a similar idea. And then I recruited him and I said, why don't you put up the clinical zone in Utrecht? So there we were in two cities. And then a brother of a clinical zone in Amsterdam said, why don't I put it up in Delft? And so we started expanding and, and, and it exceeded my wildest dreams. Now it's, I don't know, in 13 cities, I'm not even sure, but also in London and Stockholm, I never thought it would go international. And, and I had a very clear sort of hope when I started the clinical zone and that it would get to the age of 10. And it, and it did, like it's 13 years old now, which is amazing. And it is, yeah, it's killing it. I think every student knows about the consultants and it's just something that has a lot of impact on people's lives. It's not, I don't earn any money from it. And I did think once, should I take this commercial? But I'm glad I didn't. It's, it's a very powerful organization just the way it is. What a beautiful story. How did the learnings from Kleine Consultant impacted you or thought you in your next and divorce? I think what was really strong in the Kleine Consultant, which I, which I learned in Isaac, Isaac was for me, Isaac is a big international student organization, and I think it's 100 years old, or maybe, no, it was founded after the Second World War to bring people together. And what is unparalleled in Isaac is that it has a really clear vision and a very strong culture. And that is what was very successful in the clinical zone as well. Everybody in the clinical zone actually knows the founding story. And why is that important? Because we remember why we're doing this. We're helping, we're bringing strategic advice to the places where it normally would not be. So anybody who needs strategic advice, but can't afford it. And thinking about the students in the Uitkijk wanting to start their film company illustrates that perfectly. That's exactly where we add the value. So I think the clinical zone is a very mission-driven company very clear values and that has made it survive as an entity 
which is very similar in culture 13 years later with entirely different people, a full generation <laughs> difference between the founders and the now Kleine consultants. But the DNA of the organization is the same. And so something that has stuck with me and that is really important is like, why do we do what we do? And if you can't answer that question, which is very often the case, then it's much harder to motivate yourself for a particular company or an organization. And in Lamudi, which was the online real estate platform, which I built in the Philippines for Rock the Internet, it was awesome. It was a great experience. And I think we could actually have quite a lot of impact, especially on the lives of our employees who had an opportunity. But in the end, why were we doing this? to make money for Rocket Internet shareholders. And I don't think I can motivate myself long-term just purely for commercial reasons. I need to have a bigger vision beyond that. And that's what I learned, I think, most in the clinical consultant. So after you change your password, uh, which still is until today, as we've learned, uh, so so you wanted to go on the entrepreneurship um, route. Then you start the, the adventure with Rocket Internet. You go to Philippines, you start an office there with two interns, and then you grow that team to 100. I was wondering, how do you grow a team from zero to 100 while maintaining the why? Why do we do this and the mission and also ensuring that you have the right people in the right places? Yeah, that was the, the biggest challenge. I think the biggest challenge indeed in growing a company, especially as a CEO, is getting the right people. Do you remember the first date that you got in the office in Manila with two interns and you're like, okay, what's next? Yes, very much. <laughs> it was at a picnic table. We, we literally had this plastic picnic table in the office of a fellow rocket internet company. And we really thought, okay, what the hell do we do now? <laughs> and then we spent two or three days on strategy. And then we figured like, nah, this is not working. <laughs> we just need to get into action. And then we started hiring people. Our hiring process was disastrous. It was brilliant. Like we, we were in the Philippines and in the Netherlands, when you go to university, it's a good university. Everybody is qualified who went to university. In the Philippines, one university is not at all the same as another university. So it's not about whether you went to college or university, it's about what university. And there are three or four good ones. And there are a lot of Mm-hmm. medium quality slash very poor quality schools and we had no idea of this whole concept so we didn't know how to evaluate people's educational background or how to evaluate people's job background so we got the most random candidates like it was a wild west we had people who would you know the vast majority of people didn't show up for the interview we had people who would call and say look i can't come is it okay if i send my mother or my brother we had <laughs> we had somebody who during the interview she said she needed to go to the toilet and mysteriously so she took her bag with her and she never returned to the interview in the middle of the interview she just ran off then we hired people and then like 50 percent of the people who would actually made an offer wouldn't show up for the first day of work and that started with our head of hr so our first hire was a head of hr and i think in retrospect i understand what went wrong there when he had applied with us he walked into the office of our fellow company which was lazada at the it was a huge e-commerce company and there were hundreds of people in the office. 
and we were renting a desk there. So this guy came into Lamudi thinking like, wow, this is an amazing big company. And then he got the offer, he took the offer. And then on the first day he realized, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm stuck here with three kids. This is a company of like four people. I'm out of here. And, and then Filipinos are indirect in language. And I didn't have any censors for that in the beginning. I think in the second week of his employment on Tuesday, he said, my child is on the ER, thus I must quit my job. And I was like, no, 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 Arlan, you shouldn't quit your job. <laughs> you need your job. You need to take a day off. You can work from home, remote, whatever. And the next day he came in and he said his mother had died, I think. And again, he wanted to quit his job. I was like, Arlan, no, 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 no. Don't quit your job. <laughs> and on Friday, his wife emigrated to Dubai. And he was like, I definitely quit my job. And he didn't come back. <laughs> I just didn't understand until, you know, we, we bumped into him, I don't know, a year later. And we just realized that, I don't know if this was old Bush or probably it was, but he just moved on to another company. He just probably got really cold feet from seeing our messy little startup company. And this happened in multiple forms so many times again. And the mistake that I made as a CEO was having this rocket internet pressure, having to scale to 30 people in three months as a first-time CEO, was filling seats. We need salespeople. Okay, anybody who can do the job, start working. And that can look like a good strategy of, okay, I'm just going to hire who survives. But it wasn't because we got a lot of bad apples to the point of criminal behavior in some cases. But especially people are really bad for culture. And so I had a lot of bad apples in that initial team. And it took a while to, to clean that out. <laughs> And I learned to become very strict, very strict in hiring. And so now my own rule of thumb is I score people on a scale of one to five, uh, where uh, one is obviously terrible, uh, two is not good, uh, three is good, you can do the job, four is great, and five is amazing. I only hire a four or five, never hire somebody who can just do the job because the difference between four and a five, even if you pay the four or the five, you know, 20, 30% more, they're going to deliver 300% more. So it's always worth effort to pay more for great people. That's what I learned. Have you, have you read the book, No Rules Rule? I haven't. You should definitely read the book. It's, it's, it's by uh, Reed Hastings, and he talks exactly uh, about this, that you should um, always hire only exceptional people because they are going to be the ones that set the standards and build the culture. Yes. So based on all this learnings and hiring only a four, four or fives, how did you take the learning into carbon equity? And maybe if you can tell us a little bit about carbon equity. Yeah. So Carbon Equity is a platform for alternative climate investments. So the mission of Carbon Equity is to move capital to climate change by the billions and to get as many people involved at, in climate investing as possible. And the reason why we want people to get involved is because we believe that when you invest in, you become invested in at an emotional level. It's something cool. It becomes part of your identity. And it's an empowering thing. So investing in climate technology literally is building the future and it's something very exciting, we think. 
So the way that we do that is we offer small ticket access to the world's best climate funds across asset classes. So venture capital, private equity, private debt, and real assets. And the reason why we don't invest directly into companies, uh, but invest in funds is that climate is such a complex topic. It goes all the way from alternative proteins to batteries to carbon capture and storage, you name it. So who are we to have all of that expertise in our pocket? We don't. So we really want to focus on how to connect capital to climate funds at scale, how to get as much people involved, how to move the capital by the billions. So that's what we do. I had the idea for carbon equity a long time back. You know, I'd been thinking about climate change and climate investing from probably two years back. I read a book, which I really recommend reading, which is called The Sixth Extinction. And it talks about the five major extinctions that have happened in the history of the earth and about how what is happening right now is at a pace unparalleled. The level of extinction and the rate at which we're, we're literally heading for complete extinction, including human extinction, is astonishing. And that was for me a total wake up call. I don't know. We, we could be within the last set of generations of humans on earth. And I, I seriously think that. I also don't think that's a terrible thing. Uh, because, you know, once, once humanity is a plague, in fact, where we don't have natural enemies. And so we're a plague completely. So when humans go extinct, then the earth will get a reset. I read in that same book or some, perhaps somewhere else that most likely when humans go extinct, rats will rule the earth. <laughs> because thanks to humans, rats have populated all around, they spread all around and, and, and carry robust animals. So, you know, they might be the next thing after humans. But anyway, that was a total wake up call. And I really realized, okay, I want to spend my talents and my time and my energy on something on climate change. There's absolutely no theme that is more relevant than that in my lifetime. And I, through my roles in private equity and venture capital, I've learned that money makes the world go round. You know, what I really like about capital, and capital is a bit of a dirty word, but the cool thing about capital is that it really moves everything else. I could start an alternative protein company. I could start a battery company. I could start aquaculture, whatever. But by being, uh, by be being able to allocate capital in the right direction, I can do everything. I can power everything. I'm the motor. Capital is the lifeblood, unfortunately, in our society. And that's why I very strongly believe in the role of investing. And that's why I chose carbon equity. In my, I guess, my biggest talent or my superpower, when, when I talk to interns now, I always ask them, what is your superpower? Everybody has a superpower. And I want to know what your, what is yours, Galen? <laughs> but my superpower is attracting people, like getting people on board. When I talk to people, I can get them enthusiastic about what we're doing, but also really energized to be, to want to be on board with these ideas. And so in my random conversations, you know, just, you know, spilling my thoughts on carbon equity, then people are like, oh, how can I join? This is super interesting. Plus, when I find talented people, I never hesitate to ask them, do you want to be part of this? Or how, how would you think about being part of this? 
So that's how I attracted the team. We're five co-founders in the team and everybody met through me. And, and it's funny because at times all the founders were asking them, so guys, how did you get drawn into this by Jackie? <laughs> it still happens. Like all the time, I just had a great conversation with a Swiss angel and entrepreneur and he was like, he had the same idea for carbon equity. And so I said, can we do this together? Is there a way that we can get, do this together? So I think... I'm good in getting people on board. And then I'm very open. I share. I like to share. I like to be, get people involved. And if I need to split my equity, I'd be very happy to do that with people who can make this happen together with me because I'm very conscious and aware that I can't do it by myself. Next to attracting people, right? So you start from scratch, zero people. You have to attract your co-founders and then you, you slowly grow. You have to be open and to share what other skills then you have to learn while you're growing maybe the team from five to 10 and then maybe to 20? I think for me, the main thing I need, needed to learn and needs to learn still, and the thing I think I struggle most with is dealing with anxiety and uncertainty like and, and insecurities because Maybe you now look at me, oh, you founded the clinical Zultan and then the Moody and your money, and then you were a partner in a VC firm, etc. You know your shit. And at the same time, I constantly have these existential anxieties of like, oh shit, I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, is there even demand for my business? Am I doing the right thing? Am I even solving the right problem? Am I having the impact that I want to have? And my head starts spinning. And then I can totally lose it and that can go very quickly. And then because anxiety can be very paralyzing. And that was the same when I started Lamudi in the Philippines. It's funny because like I came there and I was like, yeah, but there's already competition. What are we doing here? What's our value add? And I actually went up to the conversation with Alex Kudlich, the CEO of Rock the Internet saying, I don't think we should be in the Philippines because there's already competition. And then within a year, we bought that competitor. <laughs> For three years, we were totally dominating the market. So it was stupid and irrational and just totally not productive to have those kind of anxieties. And I think that's personal. I have these anxieties. My co-founder, for example, has no anxiety whatsoever. She's like, no, we're killing it. We're going to be great. <laughs> we're great. But, but I have those anxieties. And I, and I think that's debilitating at times so I need to learn how to deal with that I think that's and I think generally being an entrepreneur is a pretty it's a roller coaster there are a lot of mental ups and downs and I would think more people struggle with this than than I and so learning to get a grip on yourself learning how to manage uncertainty or anxiety or you know when you have a conversation with an investor who said who basically says this is never going to work <laughs> can be discouraging and, and you need to find a way to deal with that I think that's the most important thing and other than that I learned a lot about how to be a, how to manage a team how not I made a lot of mistakes as a leader too much to talk about right now but I learned how to build a bit of a, a structure in a team and, and many things but I think the thing that is most you know pertinent to me right in this phase of my journey is again really managing my own mindset 
kindly let me know how you do that. I, I would appreciate some learnings there. The, the essence of it is when, when you do something creative, like you putting yourself out there as a, as a podcast host or me putting myself out there as an entrepreneur and raising money and putting my reputation on the line and you're putting yourself out there. You're in the arena. Brene Brown has this really amazing book, which is called Dare to Lead. And she talks about uh, the man in the arena. It's such a powerful, such a powerful quote that has done a lot for me. So it goes like this. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a fragment from Theodore Roosevelt. It it's not, not the critic, the critic who, counts. who counts. It is not the man who sits and points out how the doer of deeds could have done things better and how he falls and stumbles. The credit goes to the man in the arena whose face is marred with dust and blood and sweat, but when he's in the arena at best, he wins, and at worst he loses, but when he fails, when he loses, he does so daring greatly. And that for me is the essence of it, because you're putting yourself out there, and that's really scary because you can't fail in public, but at least you're putting yourself out there. You know, and there's so many people who don't dare to put themselves out there and you're doing it. So, you know, we should be afraid to fail less. And indeed, if we fail, at least fail whilst daring greatly and having no regrets. So, yeah. Absolutely. Love that. So in the, in the conclusion, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. What are three most important things that founders listening can just go and implement in their team tomorrow when it comes to building teams? Cool. Yeah, I would say implement that hiring model. Score everybody on the scale of one to five. Why don't you do that not only for future hires, but also people in your team? Who are the people who are stars? And who are the people who are so-so? And then really nurture the people who are your stars. And, you know, I think as a CEO, I've had to make decisions both on hiring and on firing. And aside from hiring just awesome people, the other thing is you also really need to get people rid of people. I'm sorry, that sounds very inelegant, but you should not stick with people who are not fit for the role or who are bad for culture, do it sooner than later. And I see a lot of people who find that very difficult. And I found that very difficult in the beginning as well. But, you know, the sooner you do that, the more healthy your organization will be. And it will go to the next level because good people and a great culture attract good people and a great culture. So I think that's something that should be very honest towards yourself. What changes should you make to build a great team? And the third, you asked about building a team, huh? Yeah. Yeah. The third is to make people feel appreciated and empowered. That's the biggest driver of people's motivation. It should never be the Jackie show. <laughs> You know, it's not about you. Your role as a CEO or as a founder is to empower other people. So to make people feel appreciated, to make them feel heard, to make them feel relevant, to make them feel important. That's such an important way to motivate people. And I think for me, that's also still an ongoing lesson. I fail very often in that because, you know, I'm, I'm a very dominant person. I have my ideas. You're going to feel it from 10 miles away if I don't trust you entirely. <laughs> <laughs> so 
yeah, I still have a lot to learn in that department. Um, but you know, the, the, it's, it's very powerful when you get great people and when you give them responsibility and when you make them feel that you trust them, they will spread their wings and fly so high. And, and that's a beautiful thing. It, for me as a CEO in a CEO role, that's the most beautiful thing to see when people really find their footing and they start to fly. And that's magical. Do you have, do you have an ask from people listening? Yeah, I would be very curious to learn about the mental journey of other founders in a similar stage and to what extent they experience anxiety, self-doubt, imposter syndrome and what their tools or hacks or tips are for dealing with it not everybody's going to have that maybe there are some people out there listening that have a similar experience and yeah feel free to connect and share your experience with me i really want to learn about this so where where can people find you well, LinkedIn or Jacqueline at carbonequity.com. You can find me there. I'm not always there. I'm <laughs> not always responsive, but I'm there. And uh, I do try to respond to uh, messages. But um, yeah, so if you feel ignored, I did not ignore you on purpose and just uh, try again. But you can find me there or in the next web and West. That's where my office is. So uh, come and have a coffee. <laughs> Sounds good. Guys and girls, go and have a coffee with, uh, with Jackie. Jackie, I truly appreciate uh, you taking the time we we had the opportunity of working together very briefly and i do i do appreciate you yeah thank you colin i'm so proud of you doing this podcast